just something about the strings, isn't there? Like they resonate with the harmony of your soul, speaking to the depths of your heart. But you wouldn't understand that, would you? Because you're a simpleton, a mouth breather, who hasn't even considered signing up for the Weekly Q newsletter from WMQComics.com. Like the strings, the newsletter calls to you with its perfect collection of the best of the week, along with Dan's weekly editorial. Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. And um, how are you doing? Seriously. Uh, Honestly, it feels like such a small thing to be talking about comics at a time like this. But uh, it's because it's a small community. You know, it's it's found family. And right now our family is hurting. Uh, A lot of people are. You know, we've got retailers who've had to shut their doors because... Hard-ass governors don't consider them essential. We've got publishers racing to delay books because there won't be anywhere to ship them. We've got creators for whom work is going to dry up as a result of all this for God knows how long. Um, you know, we've lost all our spring cons, free comic book day, New Mutants, Black Widow. Uh, the last superhero movie anybody saw in the theater was Bloodshot. Obviously, this is all happening for a reason. You know, we want to keep people from dying, hospitals from being overwhelmed, but... We're destroying so much of ourselves in the process. So just everyone, find a way to take care of each other. Keep checking in. Find a way to support your local comic shop. Look for some creator Kickstarters or Patreons to back. You know, we, we need an industry to go back to on the other side of this. Otherwise, what was it all for? Ah, anyway, we still have a show to do. Uh, our guest this week is Mariah McCourt, writer of Ahoy Comics' upcoming Ash and Thorn, which... According to Ahoy's website, is still due out April 1st, but according to previews, was bumped to April 29th, so shrug emoji. Uh, either way, though, Ashen Thorne is about a senior citizen who learns she is the latest in a line of chosen ones selected to fight monsters and prevent the apocalypse. Uh, so we talk about that. We talk about the Golden Girls and Miss Marple and Angel and Terry Pratchett making your own toys, and uh, it's a good time, I promise. Not like that bummer opening I just did. Uh, meanwhile, what is going on over at the WMQComics.com? We're still going. Government can't shut us down. Can they? Anyway, we've got a new episode of Will Nevin's The Breezeway Podcast with guest Ted Anderson, writer of Aftershock's Orphan Age and Moth and Whisper. Uh, we've got an X-Man of the Week on cable. We've got a bonus reading all about Spider-Woman. Um, quick aside. So today, uh, this afternoon, I was actually... Uh, Matt encouraged me to watch some of the 1970s Spider-Woman cartoon. Guys, it is terrible. I love it. Um, <laughs> where were we? Oh, yeah. Uh, we got our top picks from Marvel for June, if they're still coming out. Uh, we've got an advanced review of Image's Firepower graphic novel from Robert Kirkman and Chris Somney. Uh, we got a Sunday editorial about the state of comics retail in uncertain times. Uh, so, as you can see, we are still flush with content. And uh, it is all at WMQComics.com. But for now, here are me and Matt and Mariah. 
Uh, so, Mariah, what uh, what comics do you remember reading when you first got into the medium? Oh, um, well, my dad used to bring home uh, manga from Japan. This was back in the 80s, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, I think it probably would have been Lone Wolf and Cub were the first ones I really saw that were comics. Mm-hmm. And then probably some random Hello Kitty stuff, although I don't really know if they had comics like that back when I was a kid. And then when I was like... Oh, I guess starting when I was like 11 or 12, my dad started taking us to my brother and I to the comic shop, the local one. And I remember it being actually like a really nice, like fun, welcoming place at the time. And that would have been like 1990, 90, 91, maybe somewhere in there. Okay. And that's when I started picking up some like some just kind of random stuff that I saw. There was all kinds of different things going on. I remember picking up Wonder Woman because I recognized her right away. Mm-hmm. Um and I picked up, there was a Hobbit comic that I think only had like two issues. I don't think they actually got to finish it. And I was a huge Tolkien nerd, even when I was like a, like a little kid. So that interested <laughs> me. And then when I was about 13 was when um, Death, the High Cost of Living came out. And that was the thing that really uh, hooked me on comics. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I was like a budding little suburban goth kid. And <laughs> um, something about that in particular, this like joyous um m- kind of morbid but but mixed up kind of genre about that particular comic um really grabbed my attention at that age and i think there was also Bacello's art you know there was there was that too there was something really beautific about the way that he drew death so those things kind of combined with like a little morbid sense of things i guess for me and that was when i really started getting into them and after that i kind of my brother would like collect them, but he wouldn't read any of his comics. So <laughs> I was the one reading like all these random X Men that he would pick up. He was like really into Wolverine, who I didn't really care about very much, but mm-hmm. like he would pick them up. And then I was always kind of searching through the more like weird adult comics. Um, so I was finding the Vertigo stuff pretty young, and and a um, bunch of things like that. And I was always looking for things that were more in like the horror fantasy sci-fi kind of stuff for me. It's actually kind of why the Wonder Woman stuff that I found then was really interesting. I do not remember who the artist and writer were, but like she goes into space and ends up on this weird planet where everybody's enslaved. And like there's a lot of kinds of weird stuff going on. But like that was the kind of genre stuff that I was into at the time. So that was how I kind of got into to comics myself. I think that was the Bill Mesner Loeb stuff. It might think, be, yeah. Because that was right – he took over and did most of that early 90s stuff after um, – oh, God, how am I – Perez? After George <laughs> Perez left. Yeah, I yeah. had a moment there. I, I had a moment. It's, <laughs> I think we're all a little brain fried right now. Yeah. Just a, just a smidge. Just, just a skosh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, – uh, so you've got uh, you've got a new series out uh, next month from Ahoy called uh, Ash and Thorn. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, for those who may not be familiar, what's the what's the elevator pitch for this book? The elevator pitch was Golden Girls and the Apocalypse, basically. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, that was the way I looked at it. And I know that Golden Girls for some people probably seems like a weird reference, but like I don't know, everybody my age, and I'm I'm going to be 41 next month. Um, is like that's we grew up watching that either with your grandparents or just on your own because you liked it. So mm-hmm. um, for for me personally, that was that was kind of a story I'd wanted to do for a while. When, when I pitched that general concept to Ahoy, they were like, "Yes, <laughs> let's do that." So 
it gets it gets weirder and and there, it's a lot more nuanced than that. But that's the basic idea: little old ladies and the world is ending, and there's sort of a scramble to figure out how to stop that. And cosmically, it's supposed to be um, taken care of by someone a lot younger. I am being not at all subtle about Buffy influence there, mm-hmm. uh, but instead, it's this eighty plus year old retired art teacher. And uh, she has to figure things out really, really quickly. So that was, yeah, that was the basic just sort of high concept behind it. Uh, that is great. And that is out uh, April 1st. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, just thinking about the Golden Girls now, you know, you're, you're right. Uh, you know, Matt and I are both 39, uh, soon to be 40. But, uh, you know, that was that was a sitcom like kids of our generation were just you know yep. we've just watched it on our own you know it's not like i was watching the yep. golden girls with my parents or anything that was like that was a saturday night you're watching golden girls and empty nest before bedtime <laughs> yeah well it's like it was I, I think for me it was i grew up with my grandparents so they were around all the time like both of both sets of my grandparents were alive when i was a kid so mm-hmm. i was used to just older folks around so like i didn't think it was weird to watch a show about people who weren't my age that didn't really strike me as weird and um and then also like i for i just remember really admiring um dorothy spornak's character so much because she was so deadpan Mm -hmm. and so clever and she gave like the best side eye and i just remember (laughs) wishing i could be like her because she just always had like the perfect response to everything and I think this thing, and I started re-watching it when my daughter was born because I would have these like weird hours and so you need to have something to occupy yourself. Absolutely. And I was surprised at how much stuff, you know, in the show that they tackled like back in like the 80s that nowadays I don't know that people would do in sitcoms that often. Um, it was interesting because like I, I had forgotten how much um, B. Arthur, like how certain issues really mattered to her and it showed up in the show a lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, so even for something that was, you know, like it's funny, but they would have episodes where you go, oh, that's that's actually that's they're going there. Okay, good. You know, like they didn't shy away from a lot of stuff either. Yeah, I mean, B. Arthur was Maud, man. She was tackling abortion yes. back in the, uh, you know, seventies. Yep. I still think I think Golden Girls is one of those sitcoms that even people younger than us still it, it still pops up. I think yeah, it, it 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 holds up better than a lot of sitcoms, and I surprisingly, think, yeah, yeah. I mean the. the I have rarely seen more excitement when the when Funko announced they were doing Golden Girls pops. Uh, like people yeah. of all generations wanted <laughs> yep. them Golden Girls pops. Yeah, if there's ever like a T-shirt that comes up or any of those things, I'm like, yes, that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny too because that for years there, I mean, it, it seemed like I knew people who had watched it, but it hadn't hit like a pop culture awareness in that way. Mm-hmm. And then I guess maybe I feel like it lasts like ten years or so. Yeah, there's more like the the Funkos and people, well, Betty White you know kind of people remember like oh yeah she's kind of amazing and it's it's nice to see that actually because i feel like and that's like a big part of the comic is just how much women once they get older than like 25 i feel like it's like oh where'd they go um which is always kind of frustrating mm-hmm. there's also that sort of that netflix effect that makes everything old new again and so it's like you're yeah. watching millennials discover the golden girls and friends for the first time yeah, and a lot of those old, um, the older sort of sitcom things actually binge really well. Like they cut for commercial and stuff, but it's not that weird, strangely right. enough. 
So they actually, I think because they're shorter. I mean, they, they were like half hour shows. So, but they're actually like, they, like you can find yourself just like going through the entirety of them in like an afternoon. You're like, oh, <laughs> oops. Like it's, but they, they actually work really well, especially because they don't have as much like, they, they don't really have continuity exactly. So you can just kind of watch them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of, and they're comforting in that way. There's something about the set of that, like, <laughs> that this sort of beachy, you know, kind of a thing and Blanche being Blanche and Dorothy being Dorothy and there's just something very comforting about that for me at least. I mean, probably is for other people too, but. Absolutely. Um, how did you go about, well, first of all, how did this book end up uh, at Ahoy? You know, what's kind of the journey from, you know, conception, I want to do Golden Girls in the Apocalypse to, <laughs> you know, uh, landing at Ahoy, you know, gathering your creative team, all of that. Well, um, I've actually known Stuart Moore for ooh, a bunch of years. I didn't work with him at Vertigo. He had already uh, left to go freelance after our, uh, before I was there. So, um, but I'd actually known him for years through Peter Gross. And um, so we'd always just kind of kept up uh, like a, just a friendship. We had chatted about comics a lot and I would see him at shows and stuff. And um, he read one of my other books that was actually for like a, a younger audience from middle grade called Stitched. And he liked the kind of spooky, cute humor in it. Mm-hmm. And he asked me if I had any ideas along what Ahoy was doing, which is, you know, the, the way they always put it is funny vertigo. And I was like, I mean, I think this this one concept, you know, could do that. And I just, you know, I, honestly, I just, you know, said this is something I'd like to do with, you know, Little Ladies in the Apocalypse. And they were like, yeah, pitch that up. And um, <laughs> yeah, and I, it's like, you know, I wrote up the, the full pitch and stuff and sent that over. And it got off really, really quickly, um, actually, because once they knew that they liked the concept and then they liked what I was kind of doing in the, the pitch part of it, we just kind of got it together and, and signed the deal. And, and um, I worked with um, Tom and Stuart for a while, just developing the concept out a bit. Mm-hmm. And then um, Sarah Litt came on to be the the editor. And um, that was how Sue was brought on board. And um, yeah, it came it came out really great. And that's also because um, I've known Jill Thompson for years. Mm-hmm. And um, I mentioned to her that I was doing this thing for them. And I mentioned to her the concept and she was really interested in doing covers because for a lot of the same reasons <laughs> where she's like, you know, she's been doing comics a really long time and everybody knows me. Jill's incredible, but she definitely says, you know, that she feels that, that kind of weird thing where you get over a certain age and people just kind of act like those characters don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, it kind of all felt together. Like not all projects go like that, you know? Um, but it just kind of felt together. It seems like it was the right time. And, you know, I think Ahoy was looking to to branch out with some of the funny Vertigo type stuff too to get even weirder because they're I think a lot of their stuff right now is a little more um, tongue in cheek humor, sure. whereas mm-hmm. Axthorn yeah. is funny but it's not like a slapstick like it's it's a lot more of the of humor comes from the absurdity of the situation even from the horror of the situation because mm-hmm. I like the weird juxtaposition of of humor and horror a lot so that was a lot of for me where that came from um yeah and then sue came on board and she immediately got the tone which was great and um yeah it's been going really really well yeah that's awesome uh you know uh we're we're definitely big fans of ahoy here and uh you know it, it's it's just like that they've been it, you know mm-hmm. you're, you're seeing so many more new publishers now and it's and it's nice to have one that I feel like they came in with this like fully formed plan and everything has been so carefully executed and, and 
you know, it, it's nice to see them be able to continue to kind of keep doing that and also bring new creators into the fold as they go. So. Yeah. Well, and they're really great guys to work with. Like, they're really smart. They know when they're interested in something really quickly. Um, and they just support it and, and back what you're doing, which is really great. Um, I've had all kinds of experiences, most very positive. But sometimes it can be frustrating in comics where you know you have an idea that's fun that you can do well mm-hmm. but publishers can just be like well I don't know and Ahoy knows what audience they're going for these guys have been doing this a long time they know what the comics market is and they're enjoying putting out stuff of a very you know particular type and they know how to talk to retailers and stuff about it too which is really nice mm-hmm. um, so you know it, it, you do a lot of, of you know your own illustrations uh you know, in addition to writing, how do you, how does that inform your relationship with an artist when you're collaborating on a project? I mean, it, it, I, a lot. Um, I hope I'm not like one of those pain in the ass writers who's like a dictator. Um, I always worry about that, but I try to balance it because um, my background's illustration. That's what I went to, to college for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was how I got sort of ended up at Vertigo to begin with. But it was definitely something that like when you're, editing something versus when you're writing it for somebody I have to kind of make sure that you're giving the artist enough room to do pages and storytelling and characters the way they need to and that you're not just sort of trying to over write every single panel because that's I think that's one of the things a lot of writers do is they think they need to dictate every single second and you mm-hmm. don't I mean, you, the reason why you're working with a storyteller a visual storyteller is because they know how to do that so it's always for, for me it's about balancing like the specifics if there's something I really need to be in a panel like it's a really important emotion to convey or characters do need to be in a particular spot for some reason because of something that's coming up with action or whatever then I I try to be specific about that and I am visual in the way that I write so that that kind of thing is included but I try not to be you know overwhelming with it or or inflexible because you know the chances of of an artist having a much better idea than what I thought is real high so (laughs) I make sure that, that anybody I'm collaborating with that I that I talk to them and let them know that if they have a better idea for a page, please feel free to you know to offer it up because I I don't I don't really have an ego about that kind of thing because you know there's a reason why I'm not drawing the comic <laughs> like I I illustrate and stuff but I don't I don't do a lot of um, comics work that way because it's a really particular kind of storytelling and I respect mm-hmm. it too much to mangle it with with really <laughs> bad. Uh, attempts on my part so it's funny because I can do it I can see it in a script and I can see how it would look on a page it doesn't mean that I that my particular art skills would work for something so I really respect what what artists are are bringing to something and how important that collaborative process is Um, yeah and uh, props to Sue also just because you know from reading the first issue uh, you know without trying to throw spoilers or or anything (laughs) into it but you know obviously this is a book where people are fighting monsters uh you know look looking through the first issue i definitely get like some i got some real daniel warren johnson vibes out of that out of the comic mm-hmm. and you know it's it, you love to see it basically she's uh, got a great um she, she what i really love is she has this great flair for the monsters like she really went for mm-hmm. that right away and was not afraid to make them like yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is really nice. Like she didn't, you know, she didn't wasn't worried about like oh too many tentacles or something. She's like, nope, we got right in there. 
But at the same time, she really balanced our old lady characters. They look like people, but they have distinct characters. Nobody looks the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still get the 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 mix of the sort of the horror and, and the humor, depending on, you know, what's going on. And her action scenes are also really great, um, which is hard enough in a regular comic, but one where you have like an octogenarian and it still has to be believable that she's doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Sue's been amazing. And, and I, I can't mention her without also mentioning Peppa doing the colors because that combination really brings home the the vibe of the of the book with the ink work and the and the colors so it's a it's a really nice thing to see absolutely um just touching on a quick point um can there be too many tentacles (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah there's probably a point at which it gets a little bit ridiculous but um and I, I personally just, I, I always really like that weird Lovecraftian thing because tentacles are really strange and alien and so different than, you know, humans. So I, I, I definitely gravitate towards that. Um, that and mouths, monsters with a lot of mouths and a lot of tentacles. But there, you do have to kind of keep it so that it's not like, it's weird. I think especially with horror, um, you want to creep people out and you want them to find the the stuff that you're doing horrifying but like there's a thing in comics sometimes where i think there's an overworked art sometimes that can happen in horror where it's actually like unpleasant to read like it's too much information Mm -hmm. and i don't want anybody to like feel unwell when they're reading something and stop reading it so there's like (laughs) a balance between giving enough horror you know and stuff like i used to read some of the old like tales from the crypt and and some of those comics, and like some of them were really borderline. Like some of them, you would be like, "No, I'm into this." And thank God, thankfully, most of them were like short comics, you know. But then there'd be ones where you go, "That's too much." Like that's just, <laughs> and you'd have to put it down. And like, so I, I always try to make sure there's some sort of balance there. I think Sue just does that naturally, so she's able to open up pages and stuff so that you're not just like feeling like it's a slog to get through. Because mm-hmm. I think that that's that can happen sometimes when you're working with like weirder, darker stuff. Um. You know, we've we've talked about the Golden Girls a lot. Uh, you know, in talking about this this uh, this series, but uh, who who are some of your and and you know, Matt, please also feel free to chime in here. But you know, fa- favorite uh, older women in fiction. Oh boy, I have so many. Um, <laughs> the big ones for for me for this were like my all time favorite. I think is Granny Weatherwax from Terry Pratchett's witches series. Oh, um, I was going to ask, when you were talking about yeah. Gaiman and death, I was going to ask about Terry Pratchett and death. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, Granny is like, you know, she's the ideal, basically. She's cranky, but she's, but she does the right thing even when she really doesn't want to. And, uh, yeah, that's a character that I just loved the first time I, you know, was introduced to her. So, she's she's definitely, there's a lot of that there. Um, and obviously, I can't mention Granny without mentioning nanny um who is her own <laughs> special uh old lady type character too um there's also like a lot of miss marple i grew up watching like way too much inappropriate pbs like, <laughs> which sounds weird but it was like murder mysteries and i was like six so like you know it's all these agatha christie's with dead bodies showing up and stuff so it was like a lot of miss marple but i think that was why i liked them because it was kind of comforting because she looked like a, my grandmother but she's like solving these mysteries, so to me that was always just really appealing. Um, there's also like older characters, so I wouldn't call like old women, but like they're older. Like there was uh, Marilla Cuthbert in um, Anne of Green Gables, 
was a character that I really loved where she's older and she's not married and they adopt this, you know, this little girl and sort of her, how she is as a person has to shift through that. Um, I'm trying to think, there's so many. There's like Mother Abigail from The Stand, mm-hmm. who's a great character. And, you know, there's just so many, you know, of, of that kind of stuff. I think especially if you get into like fantasy stuff where you get more like witches and, and things, um, Mad Hattie, you know, or Hetty. Yeah, Hetty. Um, and the Sandman stuff and, and the death, you know. I, I just, I've always sort of liked these sort of um, madcap little old ladies or very, very sensible little old ladies who just get shit done. So it's, yeah, those are the big ones for me. I personally have a soft spot for Leslie Tompkins from the Bat Books. <laughs> yeah. who's the vo- the one voice of pacifism in, I feel like, all superhero comics. Yeah. And is still one of two people who can put Batman in his... Three uh, people who can put Batman in his place. Uh, the other two being Alfred and Amanda Waller, who also isn't quite at the old lady stand, yeah. but is about as tough a nails lady as you can get. Yeah, that's that thing, too, because there's so many in comics you get this and just in media in general. But, you know, younger characters do tend to be the focus, you know, like 20 and younger a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So even if you get like a 40 year old, which isn't old, it still feels like an older character because it's just not usually the the point of view that much. Even though most of us writing comics (laughs) or not most of us, but many of us writing comics are not 20 Mm -hmm. um, and have not been for quite a while. So it's yeah, that, that was that's kind of the thing is. I like characters, you know, reading from different points of view. And I always find older characters interesting because, I don't know, I think it's just because I I grew up around older folks around. So the experience that comes with with being older and the view of life is a little different. Um, Doesn't mean like you're better at things necessarily, but you, you can't argue with the the fact that some people have more experience. (laughs) Like you, an 80 year old has seen more one would think, and might have a different perspective on things. Mm-hmm. And, and I definitely think there's just something in an ethos of older relatives sitting down and watching murder mysteries with their <laughs> grandchildren, because I remember my great-aunt Mary, who used to watch me, sitting with her in her big comfy chair, and like four-year-old Matt, who could squeeze in there, watching midday reruns of Columbo. Oh, Columbo was a big one. My grandparents were big Matlock people. Um, murder, she wrote, obviously. Uh, God, there was a couple others in there, too. There's, yeah, my my mom's parents in particular, um, they were into, like, all the American sort of, um, you know, those those guys. And then my dad's folks were uh, big Anglophiles. They spent a lot of time in London. So they were the ones I ended up watching oh, just a lot of British mysteries and things with. So it's kind of a... Like a weird combination. Like I watched the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes will always oh. be my my Sherlock Holmes that way because of that. So right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> Sleuthing seniors on two continents. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, I don't know if uh, you're you're current on on X Men, but uh, a couple issues ago, uh, they uh, Jonathan Hickman introduced this quartet. Of they were basically the, the the Golden Girls, except they were all retired botanists. Uh, <laughs> that's and, lovely. No, I didn't know that, but that's great. Yeah, Yay, uh, they, botany. They they beat the crap out of Sebastian Shaw, and it's 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 amazing. <laughs> and that's uh, <great>. yeah, 
I love them so much, but uh, yeah. Uh, without giving too much away, uh, one of the little beats in Ashenthorn that I got a kick out of was you see this demonic guy in you know a business suit and he's calling his giant monstrous demonic overlord sir with this real wolfram and heart sort of oh, vibe yeah. <laughs> is, is is that something we're gonna get a little more into or was that just a bit oh, of yeah. visual flourish uh, it was both um <laughs> it, it, it's definitely in the second issue we get way more into that and there is 100 percent a big wolfram and heart type of of thing that was actually my favorite um season of angel was the fifth one where they're in the lion's den basically trying to fix the evil from the inside out and it does not go well <laughs> um that's some of my favorite stuff from the show so it's um yeah i like that juxtaposition of of, of things the sort of stiff corporate with gross monster um which uh <laughs> given current situations <laughs> um you know, it's kind of, it's like, yeah, it's on the nose, but, you know, uh, <laughs> I feel like that's one of the reasons why Ahoy is great, because they're like, yep, that's absolutely on the nose, and we are here for it. So um, <laughs> I like being able to work on something and not have to be subtle with those kinds of things. Like, subtlety is great, and I enjoy it in many things, but sometimes it's nice to just be like, hey, corporate overlords, big monster goopy things, um, and not have to get too much into like what a metaphor. It's kind of just very literal. So, um, yeah, that's that was one hundred percent. I'm glad that it comes across that way because that's definitely one of those things I want to be <laughs> obvious to people. It will, as back in the day, I took part in a, a Whedon Buffyverse RPG, and I was I played a lawyer for Wolfram and Hart, so I have a uh, soft spot for those characters. Yep. Um. So, uh, kind of going back a little bit uh, in your in your career, you edited uh, Fables and Lucifer, which were you know two jewels in the crown of, of old Vertigo. Uh, you know, is that is that a line that you miss, or do you feel like the industry has evolved beyond Vertigo now because you can kind of find that aesthetic in more places? Um, you know, it's weird. Um, you can find and 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 could at the time too. You know, back when I was working there find lots of different kinds of comics and, and things that definitely, you know, I think people thought of in, in a Vertigo aesthetic. I mean, and before Vertigo, too. I mean, it, it's weird comics and, and mixed genres and that kind of thing was has always been in the, the industry. But I think um, the the thing that really distinguished Vertigo was really Karen. Um, mm -hmm. Her um, support of her editors each being their own kind of person and bringing in their own kind of work. And how that reflected on the line itself. Um, like you could always tell a Shelley Bond book and a Will Dennis book and a Stuart, you know, Moore book and those kinds of things. So I think that's the kind of thing that it it really didn't have after Karen left. Like it, it's not that there weren't good books or, or anything like that. And I know people who who work there and on and stuff for the you know for the line. But um, I think that particular kind of um, person sort of heading up the the creative end of it had a really big impact on what the line was um and i think that's something that you don't see today in the same way um mm -hmm. even when you're getting books that may have a similar aesthetic to what a vertigo book would have looked like there aren't imprints in the same way 
that there used to be in the in the quite like that. Sure. Um, so it's more individual creators who have that already. And of course, Karen is doing stuff. You know, she has her own her smaller imprint with Dark Horse and and things like that. So it's it's not like she's gone or anything like that. But um, that that particular like feel of a Vertigo book had a really specific moment in time. I think. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's like it, it has moved on, and uh, very obviously, I mean, other than the fact that it was <laughs> fairly recently closed down. But um, I think also just in the way that that Karen directed it and and looked at it um, overall as its its own sort of thing within DC, which made it very unique. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it's it's interesting because like books like Saga, for instance, remind me a lot of mm-hmm. of having a very Vertigo aesthetic in the way that they are. But I think that they flourished, you know, with Image for good reason. So you know, I I think it's all kind of an interesting thing to see how these shifts have come about. Um, and yeah, you know, I I really miss books like Lucifer because of the people that I got to work with. Um, so like right, working with Mike and Peter was just lovely all the time. I mean, they were just great guys to work with. So um, that's the kind of thing that doing freelance um, allows me to still do, thankfully. But it's not the same. You know, there's a kind of there's this there's a weird alchemy that happens when when you have certain groups of people together. And it's not just you know, an editor and a team, but it's like editor and team. And it's also group editors and people who kind of bring things together under that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's interesting to see that. And it's, I feel like I have a kind of unique perspective on it um, because of when I was there and then, you know, the years after and stuff. So yeah, it's been interesting to watch all that stuff um, evolve. Have you uh, checked out Dollhouse Family, the book that, uh, Carrie and Gross are doing through the Hill House imprint? No, I have not, but that sounds really interesting. It's good. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, it's a dollhouse, it's a haunted, I think they described it, and I've, as I sputter, as uh, the Indian in the cupboard, if the Indian in the cupboard was a demonic evil thing. Um, and it, I like it's, it. It's a six-issue mini. Issue five dropped last week, so it should be out in trade. You know, trade. that's what really creeped me out as a kid, honestly, because, <laughs> the, like, you could argue that's a, it, it originally is. You're like, that's pretty weird. Um, that sounds really great. That actually reminds that was one of those things that I read as a kid and was like, huh, this is strange. But not, like, in a bad way, but just sort of in a, like, what an odd thing. I think I would be really, really freaked out if my dollhouse, like, did that. I wouldn't take that very well. Um... It reminds me sort of though there's there was a series of books that I really loved as a kid um, called Half Magic, and um, they're uh, Edward Eager and uh, different stuff, but they're very weird, um, funny, um, playful books about like I guess I guess they're sort of set in like the 1930s ish somewhere in there, um, but like it's these kids sort of trying to deal with a, a coin that they get half of what they wish for. And nothing ever turns out the way that they hope it will at all, ever. And they have all kinds of bizarre adventures. And they handle it really interestingly in it because they're very sort of like, uh, they're like very American about it where they're kind of like, well, I want to have this adventure and do this thing. And then it doesn't turn out well. And they're like, well, that was just rubbish. Like, just, <laughs> they're like, all right, that's okay. Then they try to like matter of factly go through it, you know, and it's just kind of like, well, we dealt with King Arthur's time, but none of that was good. So, hmm, it's kind of an interesting trajectory of those things. Like, I, I miss some of those kinds of kid books. That's a really, like, a middle-grade book. Like, it's not young adult, and it's not younger reader. But it's in this kind of, like, weird mid-space, and that's kind of where Indian in the Cupboard sort of existed for me when I was that age, 
where I was like, I knew it was supposed to be like heartwarming, but like I was kind of creeped out. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that Buffy's part of the DNA of Ash and Thorne, and mm-hmm. you edited and co-wrote some of the Angel stuff when it was at IDW. Um, what's it about those shows that spoke to you? You know, I, I kind of discovered Buffy and Angel stuff late. Like, I didn't watch it when it was first on, even though it was, like, around exactly my age group and theoretically should have been something I was into. I don't remember why. I think I was starting college or something and just, like, missed it. So I watched it in my 20s and got super into it because it was storytelling and that mix of genres and stuff that I had always really, really liked. And I think I, I really appreciated the subtle and then not subtle use of metaphor for high school being literally hell and um, all of those kinds of things. So a lot of those feelings were still pretty fresh at the time. But I was older, so I could kind of really see the storytelling aspect of it and really get into that and how Whedon had done a lot of that stuff. And then you take Angel, which is much more adult and dealing with things in a m- even more nuanced and difficult way. The sort of ethics and morality of being a demon and having to redeem yourself when you really can't. Um, and I think the thing that for, for me with Angel that really stuck was conceptually the idea that um, the good fight doesn't stop. Like, you don't win. You just keep going. And it's exhausting, and sometimes you don't want to keep going anymore, but you get back up and you keep trying. And that was something that I think, especially like in my mid-20s, that um, struck me as important because so many things try to give you like that solution of like, oh, we're going to solve it or we're going to fix the apocalypse and like everything will be great. And um, there weren't really easy things like that. And even once one thing was solved, it led to consequences in something else. And um, that's one of the reasons why I think um, season five of Angel resonated so much was that every decision that they make has huge implications and everything leads eventually to Fred and Illyria and a major permanent consequence, which is really painful, Um, but like powerfully done. And that was something I really admired is taking that kind of risk in storytelling. You know, risks don't always work out, but like I'd rather take them than not. And they really, really risked a lot of big stuff in, in Buffy and Angel both. And I think that the the heart there though those those stories that you know you just keep fighting and you don't always get it right and a lot of the time you screw up massively but you keep pushing because you know it's the right thing to do and that was something for me that was a big part of of Ash and Thorn which is that sort of idea that like whether we're talking about some big cosmic evil you know or we're talking about everyday badness um, is that there are people who get up every day and keep going and keep doing what they need to do and that was very much something I wanted to explore through older female characters specifically um, and their point of view on that because I think that's I think that's something that a lot of older women have a distinct experience with. Hmm. Are, do you have particular a particular favorite episode of Buffy and or Angel or is it too difficult to choose just <laughs> a couple of them? I mean, there's always like I mean, you know, I could I could pick them all day, but like the ones that that I think for me are always like the really depressing ones. Um, like a hole in the world is definitely of angel. Like it's oh. just yeah, that's such an, a powerful episode. But the it body hard every time. Yeah, 
and the body in in Buffy um, is such an agonizing episode, and it's such a perfect encapsulation of grief. My my dad actually just died last year um, in November, and um, it was interesting because it just it reminded me. I thought of a lot of things from the body, like the like when you can't really figure out what to wear, like that matters. Um, and and just the weird random thoughts that you have and the different ways different people deal with those kinds of situations. Um, you know, for a show that was about like high school and vampires, it really uh, hit on some pretty profound moments. And there's the the end really where um, Dawn says, you know, where did she go? And that's always something that, that sticks with me because, you know, I think being a human being and being aware of, of our own limits is definitely one of the more... Um, difficult things and I think as a writer and, and a creative person something I'm constantly trying to reach out I think and express and share in some way so um, those are the kind of episodes that always really stuck out but then of course there's the musical episode once more with feeling is I mean <laughs> it's a brilliant piece of like there's no getting around that that is a brilliant piece of of, of everything really so um, stuff like that always kind of strikes me but then again I watch rewatch these shows and I'll be like I love this episode and I'm like of course you love this episode <laughs> you know even my least favorite seasons have episodes I love you know so it's that's kind of how they always go absolutely um, and I, I've, I've been trying to come up with a way to phrase this question in a, a, a pithy manner and I have <laughs> yet to be able to come up with it so you're writing you know, senior citizen, monster hunters, and you co-wrote a miniseries about Lyria, who is the most seniorest of citizen, <laughs> even if yeah. she's in the body of a younger person. Uh, so, classic comic book question: Lottie Thorn, Lottie Thorn versus Illyria. Who wins? Um, boy, that's a good question. Um, I think Lottie, because Lottie would outthink her. Lottie doesn't just rely on like brute strength, which is one of Illyria's, at least early Illyria's uh, handicaps, is sort of relying on just her ability to punch through a wall. And um, while sure, uh, you can do that, that's not always um, the best solution to something. And I think Lottie would also be a lot more clever in in how she would defeat her, because it wouldn't necessarily mean killing her, it just means defeat can mean different things. So Lottie's a very thoughtful character that way. So while she does have this strength and things from this this being tapped as a savior sort of character, um, she doesn't lose her ability to problem solve or or think of things a little bit differently. Um, and uh, Illyria has that, you know, that she has to be depowered at that one point. So it's kind of like, I'm overthinking this, but... <laughs> <laughs> The different stages of Valyria, and like, when would you be? Because I like that that first part where she's like really ramped up would have been tough, but at the same time, she's sort of disintegrating. So you know, all that fun stuff. <laughs> we, we are comic book fans. We break down these types of battles exactly. into the most yeah, nitty gritty. Uh, if we didn't have minutia, we'd have nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like I got to write a Valyria um, miniseries during that Angel run that I really. Um, was glad I got to do because that that character and that whole thing with Fred had really like really got me in some way for years and years and years and there was something about the Illyria aspect that was really um, interesting because yeah this is this ancient creature 
who is now stuck in a human form with human memories and what the weird inner situation would be like there. I think that's one of the things I've always really liked about Whedon's work was that there's plenty of, you know, beating up stuff up and monster smushing and all that kind of thing. But like the inner life is is the big thing in psychological stuff. And also his his episodes that um, deal with dream spaces are always really interesting that way too. The the subconscious, um, which is something I'm always really interested in too. And I always think is really interesting in genre fiction in general because how we are psychologically can be way more horrifying than like any creature. So yeah, that's always kind of an interesting thing to consider when I whenever I work on stuff like that, whether it's my own work or somebody else's. Um, but yeah, Illyria is always her her psychology has always interested me. <laughs> she gets the the best lines in that series finale yeah. too. The whole when she's holding Wesley and then in that final moment where she oh that is such a great and underrated finale because I think so many people didn't get that ending. Yeah, I mean that's the thing for me is it was weird working on the comics which were a continuation of it because for me that ending was kind of perfect. So for me with Angel ending there, for me it didn't feel anticlimactic or something. It actually felt like the whole point which was getting back up and fighting the dragon. Because that's kind of been the whole thing. I mean, it was there in season one where you can't really, like, end evil because people can be evil and there's monsters and all those kind of things. But you have to kind of keep doing it regardless of whether you win. So to me, that was always kind of the way it would have ended in some capacity, would have been something like that. So that always felt appropriate to me as an ending. Absolutely. Uh, on a, a lighter note, <laughs> after that, uh, uh, you wrote a piece in one of my favorite anthologies from the past uh, couple of years. Uh, Can I pet your werewolf? Oh, heck yeah! I, I, I loved. It's a, a great story, and it's from talking to you here. It very much fits some of the themes that you explore. Is this, this sort of generational story of uh, a? grandmother a mother and a daughter and their werewolves and it's mm-hmm. wonderful but um do you do werewolves have a special spot in your heart I, i'm a big werewolf oh yeah yeah i i don't know where that came from exactly like, i don't remember being particularly into werewolves as a kid but sometime like as a teenager they started to really interest me also thank you for the kind words about this story i wanted to write that one as sort of a softer fairy tale kind of thing um and I'd also had my daughter not that long before I wrote that. So I was feeling a lot of mom stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, werewolves, there's something about the, the whole idea of shifting shapes and forms. And the wolf-human sort of hybrid thing is just really interesting to me. Um, and I think it's, for whatever reason, especially from like a like a female point of view, because um, I think there's there's a lot of things that we feel very monstrous about. Um, ourselves and so there's something about that sort of transformation into an actual monster because I kind of go I like sort of the like classic not turning into like a wolf but like a monster wolf thing is sort of what I like the more classic kind of a thing that way or at least from like the you know the old monster movies Um, 
So yeah, that's werewolves have a special place mark because I did another series, Breaker, which is also about a, a werewolf. It's very different tonally than than that. She's a surfer werewolf detective, basically. But um, oh, this I must read. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's yeah. I, I and if I could write like werewolves and weird supernatural creatures forever, that's pretty much what I would do because there's just something about them. Yeah, and then the book I did um, for middle grade stitched. There's a female werewolf character in that too she's very shy though she's a very different um kind of character but yeah i'm, I'm always trying to work werewolves into <laughs> something werewolfy uh I mean, in there you you've read Discworld, so there's angua too who oh, is a wonderful yes, werewolf i love she's such a great character and her conflicts about being what she is like the fact that as a human there's that great there's that great inner line that she has where she's like it's really difficult to be a vegetarian when you're picking bits of chicken out of your like teeth in the morning like she's trying so hard you know and uh and it's, it's it doesn't always work but she's trying and uh yeah yeah, I mean, credit to to Granny and Death and those. Uh, the guards were always my favorite. I love Sam Vimes. I just you can't he's, not. He's he's more than any other character in those books. He has such an arc from oh, that that dude, yeah. drunken reprobate that mm-hmm. he was in the first book to really night watch when yeah. he's a father and a husband and was his own mentor and. I will always get there was a line that was early about how you know you know Sam Vimes was a racist. He didn't like dwarves. He thought they were stingy and he didn't like trolls. He thought they were stupid. But frankly, he didn't like humans either. So he's not entirely sure what he was really to that effect. Vimes just... is such a perfect character and Nightwatch is really in my opinion like a perfect book. It's it's just brilliant from beginning to end. Like everything about it's like a you're kind of reading it and you're like, you kind of can't believe that somebody wrote this because it's just so incredible the whole way through. And it's like time travel that works. Like, it's just a whole thing. It's, yeah, it's an incredible book. And, and Vimes' whole sort of thing from, especially the, the parenting, because like we actually have um, the book Where's My Cow? My daughter loves it. She actually loved it so much. She memorized it from my reading it to her. So she can recite like entire section of the book, and she does it exactly the way I have read it to her. So it's even weirder. Um, but it's no, it's extremely sweet. No, no, it's lovely. Um, especially since he sadly has passed away, Terry Pratchett. So um, for yeah, us, that was, was like nice to be able to have that share that with her so little. Um, but yeah, like having a three-year-old like recite that stuff, and she's doing like. You know the accents of like I think, therefore I am. I think of from detritus and stuff was pretty, pretty special. Uh, yeah, it was. It was five years ago last week, and my heart still breaks. Yeah, it's something my my husband and I really bonded a lot over Pratchett. He shared Pratchett books with me when we were really young, and um, we just first met, and um, they were sort of like just perfect that way and I kept reading them just kind of going like how did I not know about this writer before because I thought I was fairly like with it for a 16 year old <laughs> reading fantasy I guess and uh, and yeah I mean it's, it was impossible for me not to love them and, and all the different characters they were weird there were periods of time where large swaths of them were out of print yeah I, I do mean, remember I was, that. we had to get yeah, them special from England for there was there was a bunch of things we got like we got all the the also the special illustrated like um, hardcover editions 
um, too, so that we could have like nice sets of them um, and stuff too. Because uh, you know, there's that the older ones had that really distinctive style um, for years and years, and then I think you know the they switched illustrators and stuff, and the the new one had also a really cool. But it was different. It was a different kind of thing. And also, there's the Tiffany Aching books, which I love as well. So I'm hoping. Yeah. No, I, I remember reading the last Tiffany Aching book. I had started my first new job after working at one place for 13 years. Oof. And I had I was my first week, and I was starting to take the train into work. So I had that book and reading the the scene with Granny Weather Granny yeah. Weatherwax's final scene on a train platform and oh god yeah no, I, was... I, I i teared up i'm, I'm not ashamed oh, of it yep i mean granny's that is the kind of character like with the especially with the witches since they always know when their time is there's that presence of that throughout any of the books and so you're always kind of wondering which is the one where it'll sort of do it but i think my one of my favorites of project books is lords and ladies Mm-hmm. Because it's such a different take on elves than like my beloved Tolkien stuff, so I think that's one of the reasons why I like it is it's so different. But there's that scene where Granny is, um, in I think she's in she's in Magret's head, and the Queen is telling her, "Oh, you're going to be this dribbling, you know, thing that can't think," and she just starts slapping her and saying, "You know, like you're going to threaten me, who is old, <laughs> with." you know, basically dementia. And, you know, that was that was a pretty powerful scene then. And it has that much more sort of meaning now. But that's the kind of thing, like, I, I whenever people ask me, like, books that I recommend to people, I'm, I'm always like, I, if you can if you can handle fantasy and, and that I read Pratchett because you're going to be surprised at the stuff that's there. Um, because, yes, there's plenty of pun jokes and all that kind of thing, but... Also, some pretty profound statements about life that very few people manage in any genre, um, but that he somehow managed to get to the quick of constantly, which is just, I was always sort of in awe of that. Absolutely. Um, So, uh, I'm actually looking at your Skype avatar right now, but I was going to comment on this anyway, because I saw on Twitter the other day the the, uh, pic you had posted of the uh, Baby Yoda plush that you had been working on. Yeah. Uh, for your daughter, uh, first of all, uh, it is it it it's adorable. Uh, you know, are you uh, you know a, a crafty person? Sounds derisive. No, it's, it's not, okay. Crafty person. Know. No, it makes it sound like you're like crafty, like in a crafty way. It's like in a uh, yeah. Actually, yeah. My mom was always really crafty growing up, so um, I've always liked. I mean, I'm not a particularly good sewer or anything like that. It's mediocre, but. Um, I do like making things, especially for my my daughter, because it's just I find it fun to do, and then she always gets a real kick out of it. Mm. And um, the baby Yoda thing just sort of seemed like a fun way. She's going to be five tomorrow, actually. Oh, happy birthday! Um, <laughs> yeah, so like it's a big birthday, and she's like stuck in the house, and I'm like, oh boy. So um, I figured I'd try to make something really special for her that would be unique, at least for right now. I'm, I know there's going to be like a ton of baby Yoda plushes coming. Um, but yeah, that that kind of thing is just kind of fun for me. Like I do a lot of these weird little felt foods and stuff because she has a play kitchen. And I'll tell you though, those things have gotten me like hours of time to do stuff because she just loves them. She she actually just turned our bedroom into what she was calling it a diner, I think. 
So she, <laughs> I made a lot of stuff for her out of like cardboard and stuff. So she's got like a countertop and things. So she moved like all the play food into here. And I was the waitress and I had to very, ask for very specific orders and things like that. So she's, she knows what she wants. Um, but thank you. Yeah, no, I enjoy doing little crafty things. I mean, it's just fun to do in general. But now that I have a kid, I can kind of shower them all on her. So uh, it's a nice outlet for it. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, so I think we've come to the part in the show. Uh, we like to ask creators about their pets. So mm -hmm. uh, please tell us about your cat. Well, we have a cat named Bonkers. He is, I guess he's probably about four years old now. We got him when my daughter was still kind of young because our, sadly our elderly cats had passed on. And um, he's, you know, toddlers and, and young cats have a lot in common, <laughs> as it turns out, <laughs> which I knew, but then like having a toddler with a cat was a new experience. So they're like all hopping around all the time and like constantly getting in each other's way. And she kind of treats him the way like I imagine she'd treat like a younger sibling if she had one. Like, no, these are my things. He's also interested in the felt foods because they're like just the right size and like consistency for him to grab and drag around like he caught it. Mm -hmm. He's like obsessed with one of the strawberries I made for some reason. I'm not sure. Like he finds it. Like he will go and find it. He also did that with a mermaid I made, like a little peg doll thing. Like every place I hit it. He found it. He would get and he would drag it around by its hair. It was like kind of disturbing, but also sort of ingenious because like I was hiding them well. Like I wasn't, you know. So yeah, he's a he's a funny little guy. He's he adores my husband. They love doing like their nighttime snuggle routine. Um, oh. It's cute, and um, mostly we just try to make my daughter realize that like the cat can't understand people talk. So, like, when she tells him, like, a whole string of things to do or not do, there is no way he's going to do or not do any of those things because he is a cat and has no idea what she's talking about. So it's an interesting relationship to watch. And even if the, a cat could understand, he it's still a cat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he would drop like, he's still going to do his own thing. You know how, like, you like to do your own thing? That's pretty much him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I was just thinking, um, we have, we have two miniature dachshunds, which obviously very, very much different than cats, but the thing of my daughter's who is two that, uh, they've taken a shine to is she has a bunch of those, um, LOL surprise dolls. Oh God. Yeah. Those things are just good Lord. That, yes. Yes. Absolutely. 100% correct. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, like we'll catch them squeaking on the heads. Oh, yep. <laughs> I can see that. Those things, I swear, my child, like, she's interested in them, and she got one, and they were, like, the most disappointing thing she's ever seen. So it was an interesting <laughs> lesson in, like, how something can seem really great, and then you get it, and you're like, wow, this is just kind of like a tiny, crappy piece of plastic. And I was like, yep. <laughs> I can't argue with that, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's kid stuff, so it's it's fine. But it just sort of was funny. Like she just she begged me for one forever, and I got her one, and she was like, just just like four, you know. She's like, this isn't very good, mommy. And I'm like, yeah, I yeah. She's like, let's let's go back with the felt stuff. I was like, okay, good. That kind of that made me feel good after hours of like sewing and stuff. Like I don't try to pressure her that way. If she likes something, mm -hmm. she likes. It. She doesn't she? Doesn't. But it was kind of a soothing bomb to my mom heart that she was like. I, I'd rather have the felt cake, frankly. I'm like, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> there 
Awesome. Yeah. Uh, what are you reading right now? Oh, good Lord. Um, I have fallen into this rabbit hole of uh, alien sci-fi romance com- uh, books that I've been reading that I actually find really great. Um, they're by Ruby Dixon, and they are, I mean, they're really graphic, so people should be aware of that. But um, <laughs> they're actually like a really great um, science fiction world of, of weird blue aliens and humans and this ice planet. It's not the kind of thing I actually typically read all that often lately, but um, I'm enjoying it. And in comics, I've actually been reading a lot of stuff on Webtoons. I am hmm. deeply obsessed with Lore Olympus, like just deeply, deeply obsessed. Um, I will get the coins to get the the episodes early like obsessed and um there's another really sweet um comic on there called uh miss abbott and the doctor it's a reminds me a lot of anna green gables in tone and it's a period piece so it's like around the turn of the 19th century i think uh wait no yeah yeah around there um and it's a very sweet sort of romance comic but like it's really um lovely and and just kind of uh, is really unexpected Oh, that's awesome. Uh, you know, I, shifting real quick, uh, I am I'm just going to ask, you know, one thing that I think I'm looking, I, I'm looking for advice on in the coming days as, as somebody who's probably going to be ordered to work from home uh, quite soon. <laughs> Actually, I can't believe it hasn't happened already. Um, but, uh, you know, Working from home with a child. I've got, well, I mean, I've got an eight-year-old, but, you know, he's he's chill. Uh, you know, but a two-year-old <laughs> who has a lot of, him. yes, <laughs> the opposite of that. In fact, I think before I before yep. I came downstairs to record, she was doing laps around the first floor. Like, <laughs> yep. Yep. yeah. How do you, I, I guess, how do you create that space for yourself to, to do what you need to do? <laughs> um, you know, I have sort of a different way of doing certain stuff. I know that people have very structured schedules. My kid has never really appreciated those particularly, Mm. um, which is fine. She's very self-directed, so she likes to sort of do her own thing a lot of the time, so I'm very lucky that way. That's just naturally how she is. Um, But she's still, I mean, she's five now, but even when she was little, I mean, she's still two. She's she's not going to be occupied for eight hours or something. Um, Mostly, you know, what I would do is a lot of projects with her. I do a lot of art. We would do things side by side, so if I was doing artwork, you know, she'd be doing it next to me. Or if I needed to do some writing on the computer, you know, she'd be on her iPad using, you know, her drawing stuff or a couple, um, we had a couple really great, um, like Montessori preschool apps and stuff that Uh gave her like interesting things to do. Um, and then honestly, like during the day, I would try to do as little work as possible during a day and try to do either in the morning before she was awake or at night. Mm -hmm. And then I got really good at doing things in like 10 minute increments (laughs) Ah. where it was like, I've got 10 minutes. So emails you know, two pages of script. Okay. You know, like it, that to kind of schedule things out that way. And I sort of looked at it like in a week where I would be like, there's, there would be a day that would be dedicated to one project or another project instead of trying to do like 12 things, um, at once. Um, because, but on the other hand, like parenting is kind of just all about multitasking all the time. So you kind of just have to, yeah. for me, I have to be really flexible because a day that I hoped would go one way might not, but another day might she be like really into something she was doing and didn't need as much, um, one-on-one stuff so I would get that the time to to do something in like a you know an hour kind of thing so yeah. yeah I just kind of I try to stay flexible because um 
I think, try, or at least for us, trying to stay too regimented is, I think, too stressful for her. Like, she mm-hmm. needs the freedom to, like, get up and just kind of go, and then, then she'll <laughs> be able to kind of come back down. Um, and before having to do all the whole self-isolating thing, um, I also, we have a local park that's really close by, so I would take her out every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm just making sure that, like, our we have a little patio out back mm-hmm. and trying to make sure that that's set up as nicely if it wasn't pouring rain. <laughs> um, so there's, like, you know, stuff to do outside in the air and fresh air and stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's always a challenge. Um, I think it's just finding, like, for for me, it was just she knows what I do. And she knows that I'm working on stuff. So I try to share it with her as much as possible hmm. um, and make her feel included, even if she's, you know, it's not really, like, helping me write necessarily. But um, ask her opinion about something or drawing and stuff she's really into anyway. So that was something that's that's easy to do around her. Like, if I need to paint or something it's pretty easy to set that up side by side and do that kind of thing. But yeah, a lot of it for me is just keeping her included in it. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't feel ignored or um, like she needs to get my attention because it's not completely like not on her. It's just that I'm also focusing on other things and it works many days. And then other, of course there are days it does not work at all. So <laughs> it's, I've had to adjust my idea of what being productive means in mm-hmm. a, in a work way. Um, just because, you know, she comes first ultimately. So yeah. Um, if you need to take the steps away, they know I can do that. I'm lucky though. I mean, my husband, he works in games, so um, you know, I can I can do that. But um, yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's just figuring out at home like what things work for you guys. Because I think sometimes with kids, like getting an hour of your time, like really focused attention, can sometimes mean then after that you really have a lot more space to do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Well, that definitely makes sense. Um, well. Uh, Mariah, this has been uh, an, an awesome hour. Uh, you know, how can people follow you and everything you're doing uh, online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, Tired Fairy on Twitter is the I'm I'm on there way too much. Um, <laughs> Aren't and, we all? <laughs> uh, ugh, God, I'm like I've really got to wean myself off of that. Um, but I'm also on Instagram uh, for Monster Tea Time, where I just sort of share random pictures of stuff. Um, I think those are really the only places I I spend too much time. I have a, a writer page on Facebook for Mariah McCourt. I don't do that much there because it's Facebook and it's evil overlords. <laughs> uh, although I say that and I spend all this time on Twitter. So, like, it's, you know, one of the, who knows? That one isn't really better than the other that way. Um, yeah, so that, those are the main places that I am. And I have a, uh, a Patreon, um, which is also Monster Tea Time. And I put random stuff up there. I've been putting up some craft tutorials. Um, which are public, especially right now, <laughs> so people can see some some silly stuff I've done with for my kid during different times, um, which might be helpful for parents and little like short stories and random art and different things like that. So yeah, that's that's where I mostly am. Awesome, Mariah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you guys. This was great. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic book in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones Podcast, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Scott Madrinsky from Mojo'sWork.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's uh, Spider-Woman series, and Saren. 
Uh, you can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox, plus sneak peeks at what's ahead and an early look at our weekly editorial. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time. WMQA!